Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Uh, tonight, uh, for those who don't know, is a solemn night in Israel. It's uh, when Israel commemorates the Holocaust, it's Yom HaShoah, um, Israel's uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, um, which begins at eight o'clock Israel time, uh, with an official uh, ceremony at Yad Vashem, Israel's official uh, Holocaust Remembrance uh, Museum, um, where usually you know, the, the most senior dignitaries, the president, prime minister, and other uh, Israeli leaders uh, speak, and uh, torches are lit in memory of the six million who were, uh, who were murdered. Um, but it's also usually a time where certain political messages are uh, passed along. You know, there's, uh, there's always an opportunity for those sort of things. Uh, when uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu was in office, uh, there was barely a Holocaust Remembrance Day where he didn't use it um, as an opportunity to bring up Iran and compare Iran and the Ayatollahs and their threats to wipe Israel off the map, uh, uh, comparing it with the the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people and the fact that uh, Israel should not wait uh, for someone to actually try and actualize uh, their threats. Uh, the one thing that uh, you know, Jews say that we've learned from the Holocaust is when someone uh, tries to uh, murder us, we should, uh, we should take them at their word. Uh, tonight, for the first time uh, in 13 years, we had someone different uh, speaking in the Prime Minister's uh, uh, speech at least, and we had Naftali Bennett, and he delivered a speech um, which basically was, you know, um, a relatively par for the course to a certain extent about uh, the importance of Israel, and if, uh, if Israel had been there, you know, the, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened, and, you know, about, uh, he, he went into anti-Semitism, he also went uh, talked about Holocaust, uh, appropriation, tribalization, those who try and compare things to the Holocaust. We've seen quite a lot of that uh, recently with COVID, with uh, what's going on in Ukraine and other things going around the world. Uh, the most interesting part, let's say politically, was uh, towards the end, uh, he spoke for a minute or two, uh, uh, which I expected about unity. Uh, interestingly, he used the, um, the example of the fact that during the famous or infamous uh, Warsaw ghetto uprising where uh, those few Jews who were left in the Warsaw ghetto before it was liquidated, the final few people rounded up and said to Auschwitz, uh, some of the Jews got together to try and fight back. They smuggled weapons in, et cetera, et cetera. It, it was, uh, it's considered one of the more heroic parts uh, of the Holocaust. Um, and what uh, Naftali Bennett touched on was the fact that there were two groups working uh, not side by side, but uh, you know, uh, even against each other. There was the left-wing socialist group and there was the right-wing revisionist group. And Naftali Bennett basically made the point that even in our darkest moment, when the enemies were clear, 
even then the right and the left did not come together um, and basically were fighting and squabbling and disagreeing and not speaking to each other, not working together in the face of a mutual enemy. Now, the reason he chose uh, to bring up this example was because especially over the last couple of weeks, it's been a couple of weeks since we met because of the Passover holiday, um, there's been a sort of up in the ante of hostility uh, between the coalition and the opposition, specifically between a former Prime Minister Netanyahu and his supporters and uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Uh, this has definitely uh, been taken up a notch ever since Edith Silman, the Yamina um, former coalition uh, whip, uh, left uh, the coalition and or left the, the government and decided to, to decide, uh, go with the opposition with the promise of a position in the next government, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, definitely the, uh, there was a certain amount of momentum in the opposition. So some of the abuse and attacks certainly uh, were traded in the last couple of weeks as a result of that. Uh, we saw earlier in the week, there was a report on a major uh, Israeli investigative um, news program which showed that uh, Naftali Bennett, uh, who's prime minister and should be sitting uh, or should be living in the house on Balfour Street in Jerusalem as prime ministers uh, do. And even there's a law that the prime minister must live in Jerusalem, but because of a variety of factors, some to do with his personal family, he's got much younger kids than, uh, than any prime minister arguably ever, or certainly in living memory. Um, so, you know, they don't want to upend their life as much as possible. His eldest is 16 years old, and I think he has four children, some of them uh, relatively young. Uh, but the other reason is the Shin Bet, the Israel uh, Domestic Security Agency or Intelligence Agency, is making uh, amendments, uh, necessary security amendments to the, uh, the Prime Minister's residence. So at the moment, it's unlivable. Uh, that's the claim. Um, but because of that, they're still living in their house in Manana. There's been massive fortifications, as you can imagine, to make it secure. Um, so, you know, the, these sort of sums were released to the, the general public and some other sort of interesting tidbits about how much money they spend. Uh, and it turns out they spend, um, try to remember now, something like 12,000 shekels, which is about $4,000 a month on takeaway. They, this is well within what they're allowed to spend. You know, they obviously have a budget. Uh, usually you can have a chef, which actually will cost a lot more than that, but they've decided to issue uh, a chef and they basically used a lot of that uh, banqueting uh, budget for takeaways. Uh, those sort of um, things all came out to the media. As you can imagine, the opposition had a field day with it. Uh, Bennett's camp uh, created a graph showing that no matter how much he may or may not spend, it is, you know, a fraction of what the Netanyahu family uh, spent. You know, uh, points were made that Netanyahu uh, was taking uh, state money for uh, two of his private homes. He has um, at least two private homes, one in uh, Caesarea uh, by the beach uh, further north of Jerusalem, further north of Tel Aviv, and another one not far from the official residence um, on uh, Gaza Street uh, in Jerusalem. And a lot of work was done there gardening and uh, pool uh, work on the pool and you know there was all these claims um, which actually came out that the Netanyahu family not only had a chef but they were also ordering high price takeaway uh, ice cream for thousands of shekels and, and, and all sorts of others so 
there was an interesting back and forth uh, personally on Twitter uh, between uh, uh, whoever runs Bennett's account and whoever runs Netanyahu's account, obviously uh, with the full approval of the principles. Uh, but I think it's relatively unique that you have an open Twitter feud at that level uh, by a sitting head of government and a former head of government, but that's where we are at the moment. Uh, this all came to a head in the last couple of days uh, with the revelation that the Bennett family was sent in the mail um, a threatening letter with a bullet. Now, um, you know, especially in Israel, there's a heightened sensitivity to these sort of things, especially if we remember back to the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin in 1995. Um, so the idea of a prime minister being assassinated uh, in office is certainly not out of the realm of possibility, uh, not out of the realm of reality. It is something which Israel has experienced in the past. So there's a heightened sensitivity to it, the security detail around uh, not just the prime minister, uh, but his family and other senior members of the government was heightened. As a result, there, there is a, a belief that there is a, a possible threat, and it just goes into some of the sort of threats and the language that's been used against specifically right-wing members of this uh, uh, particular uh, government. So um, that's what's been uh, going on on that level. Uh, there's been other political theatre uh, earlier in the week. There was the Knesset showdown. Um, if we were talking about uh, Edith Silman, who was the latest renegade Jemina uh, member, we have to go back to Amichai Shikli, who basically from the beginning, as an elected member of the Yemina party, decided not to go with the government and sat in protest with the opposition and basically voted against the government, not just for the law, uh, uh, the formation of the government and the, the budget and all the important votes, but pretty much every single vote has voted with the opposition all the way through. Uh, it got to a point where basically Yamina decided to take the drastic step, and this has only happened two other occasions uh, in the Knesset history, as uh, a party has decided to officially uh, declare um, a member of its party as uh, quitting the party, uh, Poresh, has, has left the party, uh, but it had to go through a vote in the Knesset uh, uh, committee. Uh, and as you can imagine, it was a tremendous opportunity for the media and for the opposition to try and land some shots. And there was prepared speeches and there was lawyers and there was uh, people shouting and calling each other traitor and all that sort of thing. Um, as one can imagine, you know, everything kind of fell along uh, coalition opposition lines, seven out of 12 members of the committee, even maybe even eight out of 13 or something like that. They, they had a very significant majority, so there was very little doubt about the outcome, although it, it is suggested that it will be appealed uh, to the uh, Jerusalem District Court. Um, but basically, the opposition decided not to even attend the vote, so it uh, went through uh, you know, unanimously. Edith Silman did turn up, uh, but she decided not to vote in the end. But what really happened at this was basically, it wasn't really about Amichai Shikli. Obviously the event itself was, uh, but it was more as a, a show by Naftali Bennett, Ayala Sheked, the remaining Yamina parties in the coalition to send a message uh, to Edith Silman that if you decide, because obviously she quit uh, without the Knesset uh, sitting, so it's, it's, it's unsure exactly how she'll vote. Will she vote with the opposition? Will she vote possibly with the coalition on certain issues? Will she abstain? All of these, as you can imagine, are very, very important with a, a Knesset sitting at 60-60. Uh, 
uh, with no side having the majority, it's very crucial how she'll vote. So most of this by the Amina party was to send a message to Idit Silman that if you, uh, you know, you, you better watch yourself or you could be treated exactly like uh, Shikli. Why is it important that um, someone get this designation of being a sort of uh, quitting the party? Because this means that they will not be able to run in the next election uh, with an existing party. Now there are, there is talk of Amikai Shikli uh, starting his own party, which should be legitimate uh, to do and run with that. But obviously that's certainly not a surefire way of getting into the Knesset. Running with the Likud, which is probably the most likely, uh, is a sure way of getting back into the Knesset. But at the moment, as long as the Jerusalem District Court does not strike down this decision, he will not be able to run with Likud uh, in the next elections. And there's various other sanctions as well. It obviously hurts Yamina every time they decide to uh, force a member out because then they get less camp campaign funding before the next elections. But this was all about Idit uh, 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 Silman rather than Amikai Shikli. Uh, furthermore, uh, what's going to be very interesting in the uh, days or week and a bit ahead until the opening of the uh, summer session of the Knesset is exactly what is happening in the coalition. The latest party to threaten, uh, and even has gone a little bit further than just threaten, have basically um, suspended uh, their role in the government is the Ram Party, the Islamist Arab Party, uh, which basically ever since uh, the, the riots on the Temple Mount and what they claim is the excessive reaction by the Israeli police and security forces, they have uh, decided to suspend all cooperation with the government. Um, I mean, that's uh, some have suggested, especially the opponents of the Arab uh, society, that this is an empty threat at this point because there's no Knesset and there's nothing really going on for them to suspend their involvement with. It'll be interesting to see come May 8th whether this continues. What is happening within the party is it's evenly split. It's a four-member party. Two of the members, including the leader, Mansour Abbas, who's really staked his reputation and cooperation with uh, the, uh, the Israeli government, with, uh, with the right, left and center in Israel, and taking this unique position of being part of an Israeli coalition, uh, wants, wants to remain in the government. Uh, but there is another faction uh, who basically wants to leave. It's led by uh, Ghanayim, who is uh, a former mayor of Sakhnin. And it is uh, said that he probably will uh, go back to municipal politics and run for that position again next year. So this could be a part of is saber rattling. He said at the moment, I do not feel beholden. I'm not sure if I'm going to even return to the coalition. It's going to take a lot. He's taken a far more, he's leading the more hard, uh, hardline position within uh, Ram. So it'll be very interesting to see who uh, wins out on that particular thing because there are only days now, uh, something like 10 or 11 days until the Knesset uh, returns. And without Ram, uh, this government's days are numbered even more. Uh, than they were before. Finally, uh, on the diplomatic front, it's interesting to note that uh, uh, Naftali Bennett and President uh, uh, Biden spoke, and it's, uh, it emerges that President Biden is coming in the next few months to visit Israel. This will certainly bolster Naftali Bennett's position. Uh, some have said that ever since Edith Zuman left, uh, his diplomatic position has been weakened, and he's been more ignored and put on the sidelines by the international community. So the fact that President Biden 
uh, has declared that he would like to come to Israel and apparently things are moving on that front, uh, shows that there is uh, still, especially by you know, uh, the leader of the US, it is a significant gesture, um, that they, they still have some confidence in, in this particular government. And they're certainly not, uh, it would be much easier to ignore and not put out a statement about it. But the fact that uh, there's an official statement that President Biden will come to Israel in the next few months certainly uh, gives uh, a little bit of momentum back to uh, Naftali Bennett, certainly after a difficult few weeks. Uh, so with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on these or any other issues. All right, thank you so much. The first question we have is from J.R. Pride. Do you think this is the most unstable government in Israel's recent memory? And do you think another election is in the near future? I'll start with the last thing. Yes, uh, I do believe that. There. First of all, we know that by next March, this government, unless there's, again, some uh, unforeseen events like Edith Tillman returning, she said she's not going to return, maybe uh, someone from the opposition, Another possibility, by the way, um, that could turn it back to 61.59 is if Amichai Shikli decides uh, that um, one way to get out of uh, this punishment that he can't run in the next elections with an established party is if he quits the Knesset. But if he quits the Knesset, the next person in Yamina comes in and the next person in Yamina will be far more beholden to Naftali Bennett and will give back that 61.59. So, the opposition will be putting a lot of pressure to ensure that Amikai Shikli does not resign, or if he does, it'll be maybe at a point where the government is already on its way down, perhaps. Um, but barring any of these really, I would say, unlikely uh, scenarios, this government's uh, uh, days are numbered because when everyone knows that it has a sell-by date, uh, as it were, then every party within it will try and, uh, you know, sort of shuffle for a position, try and make issues that they think will speak to their base, uh, maybe even leave the government according to what they see is uh, that will play best to their supporters. So, uh, you know, we've already seen this happen. Uh, as I said, Ram already uh, doing that. We saw Merits do that before. We saw other uh, members of Yamina do it. So everyone's got to think about their political future. And when you know this government now almost certainly will not last beyond next March, uh, every, member of Knesset, let alone party leader, is starting to think, how am I going into the next elections? What achievements have I got to show? What, what, what are my issues? Um, so, so I think these are all uh, reasons why I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's going to even reach March. Um, is it the, it's certainly one of the, uh, the least stable governments. If you look at the makeup, it's, there's more parties in this government than in any time in Israel's history, and especially with such diverse uh, figures. As, as I've said many times before, I think if you lift it up to the leaders, the leaders would find a way to patch it up and work together. And there is going to be a meeting, I believe, on Sunday of all the party leaders to try and work together. But again, because it's, especially now it's 6060, any single member of Knesset can bring down this government, can stop uh, votes happening. So it's, it's not necessarily in the leader's hands anymore because each of them could have a renegade or even just someone who decides that they want to be in a, another party or make a name for themselves, or maybe they've got uh, aspirations uh, elsewhere. Like I said, uh, with one member of Knesset Hamayim, who they say has aspirations to return uh, to be mayor of Sakhnin. So 
there, there are so many permutations there, which certainly make it extremely unstable. But they did manage to stabilize a little bit after this um, and, and stop the momentum of the opposition after, after, um, after the latest Yamina MK left. Uh, it did so. And so, you know, uh, it, it could last through the summer session. That'll be very, very key because obviously after that, you then get a nice big recess and then you have the Jewish holidays and then already we're starting to get to the end of the year. So I think it, the next couple of months, once the Knesset returns, will really be crucial uh, for the longevity of this government. Thank you. And I know we have an entire webinar coming up on the Temple Mount, but anonymous attendee asked, uh, will Israel cede control of the Temple Mount to the Jordanians as per Mr. Blinken's suggestion? Well, first of all, you know, I, it's a very complicated question. Israel has official sovereignty. It's within the borders of what Israel considers uh, under its sovereignty. Most of the rest of the world do not consider that. The US did recognize Israel's sovereignty uh, under the Trump administration. The Biden administration has kept to that. Um, but ever since 1967, Israel did hand off the day-to-day -day running of the Temple Mount, uh, except for security issues, to the Jordanian established and funded waqf, which are the Islamic religious authorities. So I don't think anything's going to change there. Jordan still has, <clears throat> is a major player. Um, I didn't hear of any suggestion that things will change. Everyone keeps on talking about the status quo, so I can't imagine the status quo will change. I can't imagine that Israel will give up or cede any less control, and I can't uh, see the Jordanians ceding any of their less control. So I think at the end of all this, unfortunately, this is probably going to become an annual happening now uh, because of what happened last year. Um, but uh, I think there'll be certain understandings at the moment. They're trying to reach understandings with some Arab leaders to try and calm the situation. The Israeli security forces is working day and night to try and take, uh, you know, take out uh, either arrest or, or otherwise uh, some terrorists and some organizations which are trying to take advantage of this and incite. Um, but Israel's trying to ride out the Ramadan period, which also, as, as we saw, uh, included Pesach, and now it's including Holocaust Remembrance Day, and next week we'll have um, Israel's Independence Day. Uh, and, and within that also you have, I think, Nakba Day, which is what uh, the Palestinians refer to Israel's um, creation, and they celebrate or commemorate every year with riots. So it's, it's a tense time all around, but I think everyone's trying to get through it. Uh, but I can't imagine after the dust has settled that there'll be any major changes to the status quo. Thank you. Len Levin asks, has it been a plus or a minus to Israeli Jews and to the Israeli Arabs for the Ram Party to be a part of the coalition government? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer because it depends where you sit on the political map. It's only historic. It's only unprecedented. It certainly shatters glass ceilings, if, if you will, which means that uh, potentially we could see this a lot more. Uh, Mansour Abbas, uh, it certainly remains committed to the government. As I said, he has pressure. Uh, and there are many who feel that they should have quit the government even a week ago. Um, the religious council talked about quitting the government uh, because Ram is a religious party, we should remember. And it does have, like some of the Jewish religious parties, it does have a religious council which advises and it advises advise them to leave. There is, a, you know, the the whole issue around uh, what happened on the Temple Mount is 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 very important for many in the Arab street. So 
they're very angry to see. You know, don't forget the images they see is not always the truth and certainly taken out of context when they see Israeli uh, police and security forces, what they claim attacking uh, Muslims who are on the Temple Mount, obviously uh, they, most of them, if you'd have seen before, were rioting and creating trouble and throwing uh, stones and Molotov cocktails from the mosques, uh, sometimes onto the Western Wall, uh, down onto the Western Wall uh, Plaza where Jews are praying. Uh, but it's created, we shouldn't underestimate the anger of these images that have been seen on the Arab streets. There's a lot of pressure on Iran to leave. Um, they have got some, uh, I would say at this point, minor achievements. Um, it'll be interesting to see at the moment, polls have shown Iran not growing, but not uh, decreasing. I mean, this is, I haven't seen a poll since everything that went off on the Temple Mount, but uh, up until now, I think there is a still sizable chunk of Arab society that does want to be more involved, that does want to see their representation in the decision-making process, in the government, rather than just sitting in the opposition, as the joint Arab list does and will continue to do, basically just complaining. So I think the jury is out on that, and it depends where you sit on the map. But I think uh, I think most Israelis, you know, when, when you take them aside, I think the majority of Israelis will say that they think that this is this is an important experiment, and hopefully it has broken uh, some of those glass ceilings. Understood. Thank you. Uh, Carrie Hillebrand asks, has the war in Ukraine impacted the Israel-Russia deconflict arrangements in Syria? Not yet. That's what I would say at the moment. But Israel is moving far more robustly towards a Western position. It did attend, or it is attending, um, a group, uh, a conference around, I think, 14 nations, which is deciding how to aid militarily. Uh, most countries will only defensively, um, Ukraine and uh, Israel is attending that, which I don't think a few weeks ago would have. Uh, it's taking a far more robust position, and it's certainly annoying the Russians. The Russians are very unhappy, and they put out uh, their unease to Israel. They've uh, sided against Israel um, on this whole issue of what's been happening on the Temple Mount, came up very unequivocally. Not to say in the past they haven't, but certainly they're displaying their disagreement with Israel's position themselves closer to the Americans and the Europeans on Ukraine with, um, with more harsh rhetoric against uh, Israel. And I think the idea of Israel now playing a mediating role and trying to, you know, try to duck between the, the droplets, as it were, uh, is no longer really, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't really uh, stand up to much. But, you know, still, uh, they're going to try as much as possible because of all the reasons I've explained in the past, Russia is still a very important player in the region, and especially for Israel with what's going on in Syria and even on Iran. So Israel can't be seen uh, to take too harsh a position against Russia, quite simply because its security and safety of citizens are at stake. And we saw even, I think it was last night or the night before, that Israel continues to launch strikes against uh, Hezbollah, against Iranian uh, interests, uh, in Syria, and Israel needs to be able to continue that, and Russia simply allows it at this point. Whether that will continue remains to be seen, and also will be sort of tested how far the rhetoric uh, comes from Israel, and exactly what Israel supplies Ukraine at the end of the day. Thank you so much. Um, 
David Levine asks, it appears that Turkey has been making a number of conciliatory gestures towards Israel in the last few weeks. Can you comment on this? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems that Erdogan, President Erdogan does want to turn over a new leaf. It's not because he's become a Zionist, there's, there's inherent interests. The Turkish economy is flailing. Uh, it's basically outside America's sort of allies at this point in the region. They witness Israel's coming closer to the UAE, to Bahrain, to other major players in the region, uh, even uh, Egypt. Uh, which Turkey wants also to make nice with it. So they understand that they also have to make nice to Israel. Uh, so they have taken some conciliatory uh, uh, steps. We saw President Herzog uh, in Ankara a few weeks ago and conversations between Prime Minister Bennett and President Erdogan. And uh, so for the moment, it's in it is certainly is in Turkey's interest to, um, to turn over this new leaf to reset Turkish-Israel relations, and I think that will continue in the near future. But um, you know, even even by the way, I should say even now with everything that's gone on the Temple Mount, in the past we saw very harsh uh, statements from Turkey. We did see criticism; that's normal and expected, uh, but certainly not using the rhetoric um, that we've seen in the past. Thank you. Sorry, this is the question I had meant to ask. Stephen Orlo asks, does Israel's participation in the 40-nation conference in Germany indicate a change in position regarding the supply of weapons to the Ukraine? I think uh, what I understand is Israel uh, is possibly going to supply things like helmets and uh, flat jackets and things like that, which are defensive in nature. I do not see any situation where Israel will provide offensive weapons. Uh, by the way, that's the position pretty much of every nation in the world, bar just a few. Uh, Germany has uh, changed its position on that, uh, and Poland and even the US to a certain extent, but are a few countries, any country that's going to supply any sort of military uh, um, equipment to Ukraine is going to be defensive in nature. And Israel, I think, will again, really with that balancing act in mind, will uh, supply uh, some sort of equipment that will be defensive in nature because of what, what I just spoke about a minute ago, because of that tightrope that it needs to maintain uh, with Russia. But certainly over the last couple of weeks, Israel has come uh, far more towards the Western, or let's say the NATO position, uh, far more critical of Russia and far more uh, ready to assist uh, Ukraine. Again, mostly defensively, but that's uh, pretty much uh, what most countries involved uh, are also doing. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. Thank you. And for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Naveed Mohebi. Uh, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.